On the morning of the 27th of May, 1541, an elderly lady was visited in her cell at the Tower of London and told that she was going to be beheaded. She had been housed in the tower for over two years and had seen her eldest son and heir go to the block 18 months earlier. Shockingly, her 10-year-old grandson was also imprisoned. This lady was Margaret Pole, formerly known as the Countess of Salisbury. She was one of the greatest nobles in England, easily the richest woman in England, and with an ancestry that was spectacularly grand, several degrees grander than King Henry VIII's, the man who had authorised her execution. Margaret would go to the block at the age of 67, and her death has been viewed by many as one of the most senseless and cruel acts ever committed by the king. But how did it come to this in the first place? Just how did a woman, born all but a princess, eventually find herself executed as a traitor to the crown, a crown which by rights belongs to her family? Welcome back to the Tudor Chess Podcast, Episode 9, Lady Margaret Pole, The Last White Rose. There can be little doubt that royal marriages, particularly in the Middle Ages, would often bring a semblance of stability to an otherwise volatile nation. Wars would be waged, conflicts would arise between competing houses, but marriage was often a way of reconciliation, of repair. One of the most famous marriages in English history, made almost solely for the aim of ending a war, was that between Henry Tudor, later Henry VII, and Princess Elizabeth of York, the eldest daughter of King Edward IV and his scandalous queen, Elizabeth Woodville. The Wars of the Roses, as we now call them, had been tearing England in two for over three decades, with the crown passing back and forth between the warring houses of York and Lancaster, and the men who sat at the top of their respective branches, Henry VI on the Lancastrian side and Edward IV on the Yorkist. These two colossal noble houses were cadet branches of the House of Plantagenet, and whilst we refer to this strife as the Wars of the Roses, at the time it was known as the Cousins' War, for the two sides were indeed cousins, having descended, like much of the nobility of England, from King Edward III. The conflict lasted for over 30 years, and until the final decisive victory by Henry Tudor at the Battle of Bosworth, it had been the Yorkists who had been the considerable victors, sitting on the throne for 24 of the 32 years that the war went on. It is likely that the House of York could have gone on for many more decades, perhaps even centuries, for they were unbelievably fertile. In fact, the Plantagenets were nicknamed the Demon's Brood for their prolific ability in siring children, were it not for the innate ability of staggering self-destruction within the York family. At its crux, the Yorks were represented by three brothers, Edward, later Edward IV, George, Duke of Clarence, and Richard, Duke of Gloucester, who would of course go on to become one of the most controversial kings in English history, Richard III. George and Richard married two sisters, Lady Isabel and Lady Anne, respectively, 
daughters of Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick. The Earl of Warwick was England's preeminent noble, with vast riches, lands and power. He was nicknamed the Kingmaker, for he had been highly instrumental in displacing Henry VI and placing Edward IV on the throne. Edward IV is one of English history's more appealing kings. I certainly have a big soft spot for him, but his clandestine marriage to Elizabeth Woodville, whilst a love match, or at least a lust match that turned to love, did have massively far-reaching consequences for Edward and his heirs, and most notably it infuriated the Earl of Warwick, who had been negotiating a marriage between the King and Bona of Savoy, which would have been a highly advantageous marriage for England. When Edward revealed to his stunned court that he was married to Lady Elizabeth Grey, Nee Woodville, a widow whose husband had died fighting against the Yorks, it caused major embarrassment for Warwick. Soon he rebelled against Edward IV and was joined in the rebellion by the king's own middle brother, George. Warwick was killed in battle and although a reconciliation between Edward and George did take place, the king could never truly trust his middle brother again. After continued bad behaviour, Edward IV finally had to authorise his own brother's death. George was privately executed in February 1478, famously by being drowned in a barrel of Malmsey wine. George's wife Isabel had predeceased him, and therefore he left his two small children, Margaret and Edward, as orphans. A bit of Tudor trivia for you, there is a portrait which many, myself included, believe to be Lady Margaret Pole much later in life when she was the Countess of Salisbury. A clue which points to the identity of the sitter is a bracelet hanging from her right wrist, which has a charm dangling below. The charm is a little barrel of wine. The next phase in the history of the Yorks is perhaps the most notorious. When Edward IV died quite unexpectedly on the 9th of April 1483, his eldest living son, another Edward, became Edward V. Now, unfortunately, Edward V was only 12 years old at the time, and the deceased king's will stipulated that his younger brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, would act as Lord Protector whilst his son was still in his infancy. What happened next is fiercely debated to this day, with no real conclusive story that has ever been sufficiently proven to be 100% accurate. But what is beyond doubt is that within a matter of weeks, the young Edward V and his younger brother, Richard, Duke of York, vanished inside the Tower of London without trace. History, of course, knows them as the princes in the Tower. Richard, Duke of Gloucester, the protector, was then proclaimed King Richard III, and alongside him and Neville, his wife, was now Queen. The reign of King Richard III was famously short, lasting just over two years. He was killed at the Battle of Bosworth Field in August 1485, his wife Anne having predeceased him by five months. His rule was ultimately overthrown by the machinations of two highly formidable women, Elizabeth Woodville, the widowed Queen Consort of Edward IV, and Lady Margaret Beaufort, a great-granddaughter of John of Gaunt, the fourth son of King Edward III, and therefore an ardent supporter of the old Lancastrian faction. 
Elizabeth and Margaret brokered a marriage alliance between Elizabeth's eldest daughter, who was now the Yorkist heir by primogeniture, and Margaret's only son, Henry Tudor. In one marriage, the rival houses of Lancaster and York were finally united. This was enough to take on and defeat Richard III, with Henry and Elizabeth being proclaimed king and queen on the 30th of October 1485. With that, the 331-year rule of the House of Plantagenet came to an end and the House of Tudor had begun. Whilst Elizabeth of York's marriage was going ahead, which in turn would make her the Queen of England, her cousin, Margaret, who was known as Lady Margaret of Clarence, was also being married off to a Tudor. But unlike her cousin, her marriage was insultingly inadequate to Margaret's rank. As I have explained, Margaret was the daughter of George, Duke of Clarence, the bad boy middle brother between Edward IV and Richard III. Margaret was therefore a niece of two of England's kings, which made her one of the most senior noblewomen in England by birth. Naturally, once the Tudors took over, the York princesses, of which there were many, had to be married off to neutralise them as threats, and their husbands ideally had to be loyal Tudors whom Henry VII and his domineering mother, Margaret Beaufort, could control. The problem was that there weren't many Tudors of very senior blood. Lady Margaret had been raised to expect the very best marriage prospects, a duke at least, but alas, it was not to be. Her bridegroom was instead Sir Richard Pole, who could only claim a smidgen of grandeur via his grandfather on his mother's side, who was a half-brother of Margaret Beaufort, the mother of Henry VII. Whilst the rule of Henry VII seemingly seemed assured and the country was finally at peace, there were scores of people who remained alive who boasted stronger claims to the throne than the king himself. The two most potent examples of this were Margaret and her younger brother Edward, who had also inherited the earldom of Warwick. As the male line niece and nephew of two former kings, their closeness to the throne was an ever-present concern for Henry VII and would remain a problem throughout the reign of his son also. Edward of Warwick, despite only being ten years old, was kept in the Tower of London as a prisoner by Henry VII and would never leave its walls. When he inadvertently became embroiled in a plot to escape the tower, he was put on trial and beheaded a week later at the age of just 24. Perhaps owing to his long incarceration, it has been claimed that he was severely mentally handicapped, famously being described as unable to discern the difference between a goose and a capon. There was an altogether more sinister driving force behind his death though, for it was made clear that claimants to the throne had to be neutralised in response to growing pressure from Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. They had agreed to a marriage contract between their daughter Catherine to Prince Arthur, Henry VII's heir, but would only allow her to make the journey to England once threats to what would eventually, everyone hoped, be her husband's throne were removed. Another Tudor fact for you, whilst I think of it, Catherine of Aragon was also a descendant of Edward III, and on closer inspection, rather hilariously, she had a better claim to the throne of England than Henry VII, and therefore her two husbands, Prince Arthur and later Prince Henry, who would become Henry VIII. 
Now, despite the fact that Margaret's brother had therefore been killed, in part to assure Catherine's safe conduct to England, it did not stop the two women actually developing a lifelong friendship, for Sir Richard Pole was named as guardian to Prince Arthur, and as his wife, Margaret would join her husband and the young royal couple in the Welsh marches, which as Prince of Wales, Arthur oversaw. Whilst Margaret's marriage to Sir Richard Pole did not bring her grandeur or riches, it did provide stability, which in a life that had been quite volatile until this point was probably welcome. It also gave her a full nursery, for they would have five children together, four sons, Henry, Arthur, Reginald and Geoffrey, and a daughter, Ursula. Sadly for Margaret, Sir Richard died in 1505, while she was heavily pregnant with his final child, Geoffrey, their youngest son, leaving Margaret to raise the five children with basically zero income. All of Margaret's lands and properties, which had been vast, had gone to the crown following her brother's execution, and the Tudors only granted Sir Richard with a couple of small properties, which upon his death also reverted to the crown. Margaret Pole therefore endured a few years of considerable hardship, with things getting so desperate that she gave her son Reginald over to the church as a means of lessening the financial strains placed upon her. Finally, upon the death of the king, Margaret's fortunes literally changed overnight, for she returned to favour when Henry VIII came to the throne in 1509 and was appointed as a lady-in-waiting to his new queen consort, Catherine of Aragon. At this stage in his reign, Henry VIII was viewed as really nothing short of a god. He was the complete opposite of his miserly and feeble father. In fact, he was cut very much from the same mould as his beloved maternal grandfather, Edward IV. He greatly resembled him and he showed huge favour to what is known as the White Rose Network of Cousins. So this was basically the, the network of cousins around King Henry VIII who all descended from the Yorkist line. In 1512, Margaret Pole felt sufficiently confident enough to petition the king to restore her family's lands and titles, including the all-important Earldom of Salisbury. Margaret won the king over, and she became one of only two women in the 16th century to be a peeress in her own right, becoming Margaret Pole, Countess of Salisbury. The other example was Anne Boleyn, who prior to her marriage to Henry VIII was made Marquess of Pembroke. As Countess of Salisbury, Margaret managed her lands well and was soon the fifth richest peer in England, a list in which she was the sole female entrant. Margaret's favour with Henry VIII did unfortunately vary quite a lot over the king's reign, most notably around the time that he was courting Anne Boleyn. Margaret had been a governess to Henry's daughter Mary, and as I have also said, she was particularly close to Catherine of Aragon. Naturally, she therefore held significant distaste for Anne Boleyn. Margaret Pole and her family were also conservative in their religion, decrying religious reform and the changes that swept through England via the English Reformation and the dissolution of the monasteries. Now, this was actually fairly widespread across the old White Rose families, such as the Nevilles, the Lyles and the De La Poles, all of whom were interconnected and related to Margaret Pole and her family. It was during this time that Margaret therefore attempted to keep a relatively low profile. 
preferring to spend her time in the country away from the court, and she was also removed as governess to the Princess Mary. Her eldest son, Henry, had become Baron Montague when Margaret regained her family's fortunes and titles, and both he and his younger brother Arthur and the youngest brother Geoffrey were also popular courtiers. Arthur Pole, in particular, was very close to the king. He was knighted by Sir Charles Brandon and regularly ran against the king in the jousting arena. Sadly, Arthur Pole died in his early 30s of what was probably a bout of the dreaded sweating sickness. Margaret's third son, Reginald, whom she had given over to the church in his youth, as I explained earlier, had grown into a great scholar and spent many, many years on the continent, particularly in Italy. He studied at the University of Padua before eventually making his way to Rome. He was asked by the king to form an opinion on the king's intention to break from the papacy, which naturally the king hoped would be favourable to his plight. Unfortunately, Reginald did quite the opposite. He produced a lengthy letter to the king, which, truth be told, was actually more of a small book, and it was called De Unitate. De Unitate was a blisteringly sharp condemnation of the king's actions. He referred to Henry as a beast and told him that he had never loved his people. Unsurprisingly, the king did not respond well to this. Margaret Pole and her eldest son Henry therefore began a serious process of major damage limitation, openly disowning Reginald and swearing firm allegiance to the king. Now, given their conservative beliefs, I am actually firmly of the opinion that this was mere lip service to the king and that they would have agreed wholeheartedly with everything that Reginald had said. But unlike Reginald, who was hundreds of miles away and protected by the Pope, they had to openly condemn him if they wanted to maintain their liberty and their lives. In 1537, Pope Paul III made Reginald a cardinal, and put him directly in charge of assisting the Pilgrimage of Grace, the biggest domestic uprising in Henry VIII's reign. The Pilgrimage of Grace had begun in the Midlands, but soon spread across much of the north of England, and at its core was a peaceful protest against the major changes that had taken place across the churches, the abbeys, the monasteries in England. The protesters were not challenging the rule of the king directly, but focused heavily on the councillors who they felt had driven Henry to pushing through the dissolution of the monasteries, so most notably Thomas Cromwell and to a lesser degree Thomas Cranmer. Both Henry and Geoffrey Pole were ordered to provide men from their retinues to fight against the rebels, which the two men hoped would counterbalance the activities of Reginald, who was planning to do the polar opposite. In the end, the rebellion was crushed before Reginald could even muster troops. However, despite the Pole family's assurances of their loyalty to the king, they did maintain regular contact with Reginald throughout this time. Now, on the one hand, as close family, this was entirely expected, but it did understandably lead to some suspicions. The king had ordered assassins to travel into Europe to basically take Reginald out. These activities were spearheaded by Sir Francis Bryan, the one-eyed rogue of Henry VIII's court, who became known as the Vicar of Hell for his hard-partying bad boy image. 
Both Henry Pohl, Baron Montague and Geoffrey heard of the assassination attempts and despite knowing how much it put the Pohl family at risk, they managed to get messages to Reginald which likely saved his life. Suspicions now increased further still, for the Poles were known for their conservative religious beliefs and were a constant affront to Henry VIII, a man who never truly felt comfortable on his throne, all too well aware that the Tudors had been upstarts in every sense of the word and had really no claim to the throne of England at all. Geoffrey Pohl was also becoming something of a liability. He was constantly in debt and had messages conveyed to Reginald expressing a wish to leave England. His words were taken overseas by a man called Hugh Holland, a somewhat unsavoury character who had even dabbled in a period of piracy, but he was actually part of Geoffrey's household and took both letters and purely verbal messages over into Italy to Reginald. Upon returning to England, Holland was promptly arrested sometime in the summer of 1538. Following Hugh Holland's arrest, there were a number of both high-ranking noblemen of Henry VIII's court, as well as other servants who also followed him, all for supposedly being involved in a period known as the Exeter Conspiracy. The conspiracy would decimate the Pole family and result in the extinction of the Yorks in the male line. It started when a cousin of King Henry VIII's, Henry Courtenay, first Marquess of Exeter, began to vocalise his distaste for Thomas Cromwell's policies. As a grandson of Edward IV, like Margaret Pole, Exeter had a strong claim to the Crown of England in his own right. He openly hated Thomas Cromwell, and like his kin the Poles, prescribed fervently to the old faith. He longed to see a change in policy back to the more conservative Catholic beliefs, as did his wife Gertrude, who was famously loose-tongued. Now, whether Exeter overtly plotted with the Poles to overthrow the king is difficult to prove. There is certainly more evidence which points to some degree of treasonous activity by the Pole family than there ever was by the Marquis of Exeter. But as the most senior nobleman amongst the arrestees, it was his family name that the period, the scandal, would be named after. Geoffrey Pole arrived in London with information that a large Roman Catholic conspiracy was in the making, which would restore the old ways. Cromwell heard about this through his informants, and on July 29th, Geoffrey Pole was arrested. Geoffrey and Reginald were accused of spearheading the conspiracy, and Cromwell was able to sufficiently convince the king that Exeter had also been part of it. On the 4th of November, Cromwell formally moved against Exeter, arresting him, Henry Pole, and Exeter's wife, Gertrude Courtenay. The very next day, Sir Edward Neville, another Tudor noble and a cousin of the Poles, was arrested for connections to the Exeter conspiracy. By December the 4th, the Marquess of Exeter, Henry Pole, Geoffrey Pole, and Edward Neville had all been tried and convicted of treason. The servants arrested with them were also found guilty and sentenced to the full horrors of a traitor's death, being hung, drawn and quartered. The executions took place at Tyburn on the 9th of December 1538 and were followed by the beheadings of Exeter, Montague and Edward Neville on Tower Hill. Now, shockingly, 
Jeffrey Pohl, who was definitely more guilty than anybody else, escaped execution and remained imprisoned. He somehow escaped the Axeman. Now, this was either down to his mental state being so shot that it wasn't deemed appropriate to kill him, or because he had spoken out against his own family to save his skin. The probability is that it was actually a combination of the two, for Geoffrey soon attempted suicide inside the Tower of London. In November, just a few weeks earlier, Margaret, Countess of Salisbury, was questioned for the first time about her knowledge of the supposed conspiracy. Margaret remained strong throughout, despite being treated very badly by the two men sent to interrogate her. She was asked the same questions day after day. Did she have any knowledge of her son's supposed treasonous activities? Was she aware of Henry Pohl saying the king would make the world come to stripes? Did she agree with Reginald's actions against the king? Margaret remained stoic throughout, and for a time, it seemed like she might just escape entrapment. For try as they might, the Earl of Southampton and Thomas Goodrich, the men sent to examine her, simply could not come up with anything substantial. The Earl of Southampton wrote in exasperation to Cromwell, telling him of how little luck they were having with Margaret. Either way, in May 1539, after months of uncertainty, Parliament formally moved against Margaret Pole. She was attainted for high treason, a process which removed the need for a trial to condemn her. Now, exactly why Margaret was denied her chance to take to the standing court and face her accusers is unknown. Attainders were usually as a result of there being such irrefutable evidence that a trial seemed unnecessary. But in Margaret's case, I believe that it's more probable that Cromwell did not wish to give voice to a woman who could produce such a sturdy response that acquittal would have been likely. Hard evidence was still lacking though, and so when the attainder was read out, Cromwell, in typically dramatic fashion, produced a tunic which he had supposedly seized from amongst Margaret's goods. Although lost to time, the tunic itself was used as proof of Margaret's designs for both the throne of England and an intended marriage between her son Reginald and the Lady Mary, the king's eldest daughter. The discovery of the tunic was certainly convenient and was only discovered six months after Margaret's household was searched following her arrest. If the item was genuine, surely it would have been spotted earlier, particularly as the royal arms had been woven into it. If the item was real, then it's possible it was made years earlier, when there had been some initial discussions between Catherine of Aragon and Margaret Pole on a potential match between Mary and Reginald. It is easy to imagine that with such a massive household and countless properties, I mean, Margaret's lands stretched right from the south of England up into the far north, almost to the Scottish border, it's quite easy to imagine that one tunic could be forgotten about. In January 1539, a former favourite of King Henry's, Sir Nicholas Carew, was also implicated in the Exeter conspiracy and arrested. He was tried, found guilty, and executed on the 3rd of March, 1539. Margaret Pohl's attainder was passed, and she was also sentenced to death. However, no date of execution was finalised, which was certainly unusual. Executions normally took place within a few days of judgement. George Boleyn, for example, had died just two days after his trial. 
She was held in the tower for two years alongside her grandson, Henry, the son of her now dead heir, Henry Baron Montague, and also the Marquis of Exeter's son, Edward. Gertrude Courtenay, who had been arrested, was released and pardoned. Despite Margaret's imprisonment, the king supported her financially, and she was given an extensive grant of clothing in March of 1541, which very likely came via Queen Catherine Howard, who had shown some distress about the elderly countess's plight. When the king and his teenage bride decided that they would travel to the north of England on a progress, he finally gave the order for the remaining prisoners under a death sentence in the tower to meet their fate. On the morning of the 27th of May 1541, Margaret Pole, as she was now known, she was stripped of her countess title, was informed that she would be executed within the hour. She told her captors that no crime had been put to her and refused to acknowledge that she was guilty of anything. No scaffold was prepared and instead Margaret was escorted from her chambers out onto Tower Green where a low wooden block was placed directly onto the ground outside. This was a woefully ill-prepared and humiliating spectacle for Margaret to endure. At 67, she was elderly by the standards of the time and likely wouldn't have lived much longer anyway. And yet here she was, a countess of royal blood, having to basically lie down on the stone floor to await the swing of an axe. Margaret's execution has become infamous for its supposedly bungled nature. What we can say for definite is that the executioner brought in was not the regular tower headsman, for he had joined the king in the journey to the north of England, and so instead a youth was brought forward with little to no experience. In a story which is very likely made up, Margaret supposedly ran around a scaffold, refusing to be killed, resulting in the overcome executioner literally hacking her to bits. Now, as this account is the only one which mentions a scaffold, and the fact that Margaret, by this point, she was elderly, she'd been imprisoned for a couple of years, she was likely very weak, it just doesn't seem logical that she would have had the strength or even been so bold as to run around a scaffold being hacked apart. She was, for all of the drama that had ensued, still a very high member of the nobility and she knew what was expected of her at such a moment. I think we can ultimately discount the authenticity of this story. In all probability, Margaret's death was simply a very badly botched execution. Margaret's remains were then buried in the chapel of St Peter Advincula within the Tower of London. Her bones were uncovered during the reign of Queen Victoria. She was buried next door to the remains of Lady Jane Boleyn, Lady Rochford, the sister-in-law of Anne Boleyn, who famously was beheaded alongside Catherine Howard. The remains of Margaret Pole were described as being of above-average height and belonging to a woman of considerably advanced years. Margaret's grandson would disappear in the Tower of London, becoming, in many ways, the third prince in the Tower. Margaret Pole was later beatified as a Catholic martyr by Pope Leo XIII on the 27th of December 1886. She is commemorated each year on the date of her execution in Catholic churches across the globe. Whether there was any truth in the Exeter conspiracy is difficult to prove. 
My first book comes out next summer, and it tells the story of the Pohl family in their entirety, and naturally the Exeter conspiracy and the fall of the Pohl family makes up a huge part of the story. Now, I'm not going to share all of my findings here, because naturally they're going to be in the book, but what I will say is that there was certainly some degree of evidence which implicated some members of the Pohl family in having committed treason as dictated by the laws of the time. Margaret herself, it is my belief, was not directly involved. The treatment that she endured continues to be viewed as one of King Henry VIII's most senseless and cruel acts, but equally there are always two sides to every story, and the actions of those she loved best would play as big a role in what brought the family down as the men who oversaw their destruction. And to discover what I mean, you will have to purchase my book next summer, Henry VIII and the Plantagenet Poles, The Rise and Fall of a Dynasty, which is coming out in July 2024. Next week, I'm thrilled to say that I'm going to be welcoming my first guest onto the podcast, Gareth Streeter, a fellow historian who runs the popular Royal History Geeks Instagram and Twitter account, is coming on to discuss his book about Prince Arthur. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Tudor Chess podcast. I also release a weekly bonus episode each Tuesday via my Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash the Tudor Chest or you can access this via Apple Podcast subscriptions. A big, big thank you to my patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and speak soon.